Welcome to the first episode of Q Talks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This episode was sponsored by DesignSpark, design tools and resources for engineers to help make their ideas happen. I'm Shreya and I'll be one of your hosts for the series. I'm currently doing my Masters in Bioengineering at Cambridge. I've got a strong interest in the biotech startup area and in my spare time I like to cox for my college boat club, go flying with the University Air Squadron or just be dragged into yet another Netflix series. And I'm Thomas. I'm a researcher in engineering and fascinated by how technology can be used to augment human abilities and improve human performance. Do you not have any spare time? No. <laughs> Q Talks is a podcast series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of ideas and tech startups and the people behind them. We'll be talking to innovators, founders, investors and experts who'll be sharing their experiences with us and you, our listeners. We are very excited to kick off Q Talks with none other than Tim Minchall, the Dr. John C. Taylor Professor of Innovation at the University of Cambridge, and also the head of the Institute for Manufacturing, one of the Department of Engineering's divisions. We're really excited to hear what Tim has to say about entrepreneurship at all levels of academic study, and particularly at the University of Cambridge. Hi, Tim. Thanks for opening the show with us. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me along. Now, you've been deeply involved in Cambridge's innovation ecosystem for many years. And we were wondering, how has it evolved in the last few decades from your point of view? So it's very kind to remind me that I'm quite old, being around for <laughs> many years. Um, it's, it's really interesting, I think. So the whole innovation ecosystem thing goes back a long way. And we can, if you want to be really tedious about it, back to the 1500s with Cambridge University Press and all those things. What's been interesting was there were a few more uh, entrepreneurial, innovative things that happened over the last few centuries, but it's really been since around 1960 mm -hmm. with the formation of uh, Cambridge Consultants, mm -hmm. which was a, a group of people saying, look, we, the world's got problems, industry's got problems, we're going to use our brains to solve those problems. Mm -hmm. This was really an innovative business model at its time to doing a very innovative thing. And that's one of the trigger points for a whole series of activities over the last, oh, hang on, do my maths here, 50 plus years, mm -hmm. it's even longer now, um, of how innovation has developed in Cambridge. And it's been really interesting to see the, the, the key points along the way. We've had different waves of activity. I mean, I can talk for ages about this. So any particular bits you wanted me to focus on that might be of interest? Well, maybe, so you were talking about the Cambridge Consultant Group, hmm. and um, I think it's interesting from my perspective, at least, to know what the different different groups that are in, in sort of tech innovation in Cambridge and how they how they interact. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great point because uh, every, I don't like this word, but it's used a lot, kind of ecosystem for innovation around the world is a little bit different. Um, and the Cambridge one is maybe typified by... Uh, well, as they all are, I guess, to an extent, there's sort of a, a university, a source of knowledge and uh, uh, a business community. But it's not that simple. It's not just one provides the knowledge, one commercialises it. And maybe a way of thinking about Cambridge is there's, in addition to the university and the business community, there's a lot of 
startup companies, and that's one chunk of organisations. And some of those are spin-outs of the university, some are companies set up by people who live in Cambridge, sometimes they're people who've moved to Cambridge to set up a business. That's one group. Mm-hmm. Second group is then... Um, companies that have moved to Cambridge. So the the outposts of existing organisations, we've got near here, BP Institute, we've got, who else is, uh, uh, Nokia down the road there. Uh, Microsoft was here, but moved closer to the station. So even Schlumberger is just over, well, I don't mind pointing, it's over that way, <laughs> west. Um, a whole lot of companies that have moved here for a specific purpose. And then this other group, linking back to what you're saying about Cambridge consultants, Mm -hmm. is there are multiple consultancy firms and they perform a really interesting function because they are connecting the market to the knowledge and doing very clever things to to match those two. Mm. And in particular, um, just three quick points on this, you see a model where it's they are directly helping transfer knowledge one. Secondly, they are a great place to provide employment for people who are interested in working at this interface between technology and business. Mm. And thirdly, they've been the source of further businesses. So if we think of Cambridge Consultants as an example, two big companies that have spun out from them are uh, Domino Printing Sciences, one of the world's biggest producers of industrial inkjet technologies or coding technologies, and Cambridge Silicon Radio, CSR, which developed a lot of Bluetooth technologies, but they spun out from consulting businesses. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a whole thing there we might want to talk about later, if and it's of interest. When did you get involved in the Cambridge ecosystem and how have you oh. seen it changing over the course of your career? So I came to Cambridge as a PhD student in 1993. Mm. And if I'm Honest, I didn't really engage with what was going on because I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And back then there were things happening, but there was no business plan competition in the university. There was no venture capital club. There was no, there was very little visible that students could do. Yeah. And I was no different, um, even though my PhD was on innovation. I perhaps <laughs> should have looked a bit harder. But um, then I um, left the university and went to work at St. John's Innovation Centre. Because for my PhD, I'd been looking at how big companies do stuff, and that's quite interesting. But it was a bit sort of, oh, this is how very large, complex, slow-moving, bureaucratic organisations change. I can see it's important, Mm. but I want to see how it all starts. And so I met a wonderful man called Walter Herriot, Mm -hmm who was then the chief executive of St. John's Innovation Centre Limited. I should point out that other innovation centres exist as well. I'm just talking about this one. And he gave me a job. And the reason I was so excited to go and work for him was I got to see how the whole process of innovation starts. Mm -hmm. And that's to your point, Thomas. This Mm -hmm. was really exciting Mm -hmm. because I got to see how it begins when someone has just got an idea. How How do you go from that idea to something that's more interesting and more useful and more impactful? So just try to answer your question. Um, that was the first trigger for me. And then I rejoined the university in 2002. Mm-hmm. And around that time, there was a lot more interest in what was happening around innovation and entrepreneurship. And in fact, the reason I came back between 2000 and 2002, I was transferring back in because governments were, the UK government was recognising that they needed to, that innovation could happen in universities and we should support it. So we helped do a few things around that, which led to us having an entrepreneurship centre, a business plan competition and blah, 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 and some other things as well. Mm. Okay, nice. So your role at the moment is uh, a sort of junction between the, between those two, looking at innovation in large, in large uh, companies and Mm. organisations and also how you can apply that to small firms and and people that want to maybe spin out from the university. 
Yeah, so I've tried to keep an interest in things, but I'm very much of the view that if we can help get things started, then help get them started and then step away. We want other people to do this. It's not, I mean, I, I really think the idea of a central coordinated control of innovation is mm. always going to be somewhat subject to uh, some problems. So yeah. uh, there's something fantastic about Cambridge, that expression, um, uh, let a thousand flowers bloom, is sort of the approach we've taken. And so over the last 20-ish years, a bit more now, um, there's been this feeling that if somebody wants to do something, a new student group wants to set up, mm. or someone has an idea, or uh, someone from outside's coming in, just go, sure, give it a go. And if it's going to succeed, it will succeed. It doesn't need to be given permission. doesn't need to be controlled. Mm. Just see what happens. In fact, we, we recognised that we had to do this because Cambridge is such a fantastic place full of very, very smart, uh, innovative, entrepreneurial, enthusiastic people. There's no chance you can control it anyway. And if you did try to, it would stop it. So what we did was we worked out there's a fundamental need for everybody, and that is cake. <laughs> and so we worked out that rather than trying to control and ask or try and guide people to do things, we said, why don't everybody who's doing something to do with entrepreneurship and innovation come along once a term and we'll give you a cake and a coffee and all you've got to do is just tell us what you're doing. That was it. We did upgrade slightly to lunch. And so this was an innovation brought in by Stuart McTavish, the director of Ideaspace here in Cambridge. He said, oh, we can do more than coffee and cake. We can do lunch. And it's amazing. So now there are approximately 37, 38 organisations who all do entrepreneurship and innovation stuff wow. around Cambridge. There's no coordination of them, but at least now we all know what we're doing. Mm. And this is a way of just stopping us bumping into each other and annoying people too much by at least being aware of what's going on. Mm. But that might be quite a peculiarly Cambridge issue. I don't know. What do you Maybe. think? I mean, w w one of the things I find fascinating is that you are the very first Cambridge professor of, of innovation. And one of the things we're wondering about is what really motivated the university and Dr. John Z. Taylor to endow that chair now? Uh, so, I, if I made just a tiny point of correction, mm -hmm. there have been professors of innovation in the university before as part of their role. Okay. So, you are technically, of course, correct, Thomas, um, <laughs> in that it's the first, in, I believe, the first endowed chair in innovation. Okay. So, absolutely true. Mm -hmm. um, well, this is partly down to Dr. John C. Taylor being a most extraordinary individual. Mm. So, I'm going to do something now which is a bit weird to do on an audio Uh, event, but I'm now going to pick up an object that's in front of me, which I'll attempt to describe because it's very important for the question that we, Thomas just asked. We, we can see it. Right. So this, I'm not, yes, just for the audience's sake, there is an object in my hand. It's approximately, I don't know, 10 centimeters long, made of plastic. Mm. It has two metal discs or blades that are slightly bent on them. And I won't attempt to ask people to guess what it is unless you'd like to. I'll give you a clue. It's got a switch. I know what it is, so I... <laughs> This brain, isn't fair. <laughs> so, go on, Thomas. Awkward is that, is that related to a kettle, perhaps? It is perhaps related to a kettle. I was just about to say that. Yeah. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> Took the words out of my mouth. There's so many clever people around one table. Uh, so, it absolutely is. It is uh, a thermostatic switch for a kettle. And that is what Dr. John C. Taylor invented. Mm. One of many things. He has four, at least... 400 patents to his name. Amazing. And the very clever bit is the little metal disc that I'm just tapping with my hand now 
is in itself, it's two bits of metal stuck together, cut in a certain way. That's very clever. But what was really clever was this guy, Dr. John C. Taylor, also built the machine that makes those so that he owns the right to make these. Wow. So every kettle in the pretty much in the world, not everyone, mm. will use this technology. So every day about one billion people are using this technology and it has to work every single time mm. perfectly. So that's an extraordinary achievement. But again, it wasn't that he was going around to kettle companies saying, do you want to buy a switch? Mm -hmm. What was particularly nice about the example of him is he understood that the world was changing. Mm -hmm. We were moving from metal kettles to plastic kettles. Mm -hmm. So he understood this. So he didn't wander around trying to flog a piece of technology. He said to the marketing people in the big consumer firms, this is coming. If you make a kettle like this, it will be fantastic. Your customers will love it. And by the way, if you're worried about it, you know, boiling dry and melting, because it's made of plastic, this little technology will ensure that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And since then, he's been staggeringly successful. And it's an extraordinary achievement. So to answer your question, Thomas, sorry, mm -hmm. I diverted myself slightly there, is that he is an extraordinary innovator. Right. And he passionately believe, believes in the power of invention, the ideas, of innovation, getting it done, and of the importance of manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So when he said, I want uh, Cambridge University to be involved in inspiring the next generation of innovators, the next generation of entrepreneurs around engineering and manufacturing, mm -hmm. it was just fantastic that Cambridge responded so enthusiastically to that. And through a series of, of mishaps and accidents, I ended up with the job. <laughs> fantastic. What are some of the sort of, well, you were talking about visibility earlier and that when you were doing your PhD, there maybe weren't things that jumped out at you, whereas now there, there are, so there are lunches. Um, but what are, some of the, what are some of the visible impacts that maybe PhD students, researchers, aspiring innovators can, can see and can make use of in Cambridge? So it's a really good point on which to focus because one of the key things is visibility mm -hmm. and there probably were things around back in 1993 when I was here to begin with but if they were they weren't visible whereas now it's much easier for things to be made visible and there is also a lot more going on mm -hmm. so just pick out a few examples at random there is Cambridge University entrepreneurs they run a business plan competition. They are very active on social media. You can see this thing happening. Most students will probably know somebody who's involved in it or will have heard of it. There's Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. There is, um, uh, for the postdoctoral researchers, there is EPOC, Entrepreneurial mm -hmm. Postdocs of Cambridge. There is so much going on, and it's really easy to find out about it. And thanks to um, the wonder of Facebook and other social media platforms, um, organising events and hearing about them is just so much easier. Yeah. So there's just a lot more going on, which does incidentally, I think, create another problem, which is kind of information overload. Mm -hmm. People just go, I don't know where to begin. But the advice would be, doesn't really matter. Yeah. Just go to something, go to a talk, listen to a podcast, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. just, you know, make that first step. Mm. And there are plenty of role models around as well. So it's not as if it's just a sort of weird thing that's happened somewhere else. It's like you know, in science where you go, well, I might meet a Nobel Prize laureate and that will be fantastic. This is much more yeah. grounded. I mean, there are young students who've been very successful as entrepreneurs, as well as postdoctoral researchers, as well as academics, as well as they're around. They're, you know, in this building. They are around West Cambridge. They're across the city of Cambridge. We've been talking to some PhD students and they've been they've been wondering how if they have an idea in their lab or in their in their research group that they think could become a business mm -hmm. 
how can they go about doing that? How will they, firstly, how will they know if it can genuinely become a business? Um, secondly, how do they go about doing that, meeting the team, getting the support from the university um, and the more sort of legal aspects, how, who, who owns the rights to that idea and technology? It's a, a, a great and very important question. Um, and there's two bits to it, I think. One is the official bit. So I don't want to sound like any kind of um, uh, innovation policeman here, but there is a part of the university that is responsible for making sure ownership of IP is, is understood mm -hmm. and explained very clearly, and that is Cambridge Enterprise. So if anybody's got an idea based on something they've done in a lab or something to do with their, their research, first thing to do is to go to Cambridge Enterprise. There's some super helpful, really professional people who will just look at it and go, yep, if you want to do something with this, we can see who the, the owner of that is and we can see what needs to happen next. And then they can offer you support, which you don't have to take, mm -hmm. but you need to declare uh, what's going on there. Now, some people will go, oh, I don't want to deal with that. That's a, probably a pretty big mistake because they're there, honestly, to help. And far more difficult is if you go off on your own thinking you know what's going on, mm -hmm. something emerges that's a bit more problematic, it then rests on your shoulders. And so that's not just, what you want. Just to jump in, um, if you go to, if uh, say a student goes to Cambridge Enterprise with their idea and they present it to whoever they're sort of in conversation with, does that then become public knowledge um, no. or is that is no no it's all done okay. very uh, uh, confidentially so okay. I couldn't even say the word there in with a high level of confidentiality so, so there's so you're no not giving sense up your absolutely not okay. absolutely not this is about um, talking to some professional people in confidence about what you should do next okay. mm -hmm. one topic you have researched for many years indeed is how universities and industry collaborate mm. and I was wondering what are some of the key lessons you have learned? So there are many people who have looked at this, and, I, I've, and I'd happily uh, guide anybody who wants to look at this kind of research to many other places other than me. But maybe just a couple of interesting things have happened. Um, so there was, oh dear, I, I like the fact, Thomas, you keep emphasizing I've been doing this for many years. <laughs> I feel quite old now. Um, this point about, until relatively recently, the university was assumed to have two roles. There mm -hmm. was research and there was teaching. These were the right. two missions of every university going back for a number of centuries, mm -hmm. small number of centuries. Recently, we've seen the emergence of this thing they called for a while the third mission. Mm -hmm. I thought that universities should be explicitly and uh, very clearly engaging in other stuff, such as create, transferring the knowledge to industry, creating spin-out companies, doing good work. So this um, led to the government in the UK uh, seeing what other countries had done, particularly the US, and saying we're going to support universities to be more engaged in this whole process of, of driving economic growth and solving social problems, not just through the research and the teaching, but by directly doing stuff. This led to a spike in interest where universities were given more money to do this. But those early days were quite exciting, but a little bit problematic because mm -hmm. it, it was a bit confused as to what the universities, their success would be measured on. Is it that it is the number of spin-out companies you set up? Well, if that's the case, then just create lots of spin-outs. doesn't matter if they do anything or not. Mm -hmm. uh, um, is it the number of students who've attended entrepreneurial courses? Is it the, the number of licensing deals you've signed? Is it the amount of license revenue you've achieved? Is it the number of companies you've met? Mm -hmm. so there's a slightly bumpy period where universities were doing stuff, 
and were being measured on it, but the measurements mm. perhaps distorted some of the behaviours. But that's very natural. It was a beginning of a new thing. It's settled down now, and it's really impressive to see what uh, all, UK, all UK universities have done, and Cambridge, uh, as one of those, has done um, what many have done, which is there are now clearly multiple ways um, the public and private sector can engage with universities. It's not just licensing, spin-out, consultancy, done. There's lots and lots of things going on. And universities are much more sophisticated in which tool fits which job. Mm -hmm. The other thing is a clear, I believe, recognition that um, universities, it's got to be about mutual interest. It's not about, oh, there's a company, they have a lot of money. We have a lot of clever people and need money. So we will work with them and they will give us money. It's, mm -hmm. it's, if that's the situation, it's going to go horribly wrong. That's not how it works. Not how it works. <laughs> exactly. It's much more about can we um, find a, a joint interest? And we're not um, pretending to be consultants. We're not um, pretending that, that all problems of the world can be solved by um, talking to an academic. Some can be, but it's about finding the right tool for the right problem to bring together the right people. And this will change over time. Mm -hmm. So there's issues around the multiple modes of engagement. It's about it being a relationship. But it's also about the fact that companies, organizations and governments have been changing in the way they think about innovation themselves. Mm -hmm. And universities have been changing. And it's the fact that we've had these multiple changes happening, I think, is particularly interesting and particularly exciting. But it's not done. Mm -hmm. It's not as if we've, we've spent the last 20 plus years solving the problem and it's now solved. It's going to go on evolving. There are going to be multiple challenges ahead and multiple opportunities ahead. So when we're talking about the university, who exactly is that? Are they, are they advisors who are experienced in, in having spin-outs or investing in spin-outs or are they uh, PIs of research groups? Who exactly is the university and who is responsible for encouraging this innovation? Oh, so we do have a pro vice chancellor for enterprise and business engagement, and that is a role the university has created in part to support this. But again, back to the earlier comment about there isn't really a person in charge of yeah. doing this. It's very much there's a load of good stuff happening, mm -hmm. and it is coordinated and supported as as people feel is appropriate. And if something is looks really good but not getting the resource it needs. It sounds a bit sort of organic that resources will go to that. People yeah. will go, well, that's a really good thing. We should do something about that. And a way will be found to make it work. And so if that's what you mean. So there's kind of the, what the university is doing to support it. And there's then what the, peop the students, the researchers, the staff, whoever, yeah. are doing about using those mechanisms to do something useful. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So a very sort of collaborative environment. Yes. Now... Again, I'm not here as a salesman for Cambridge, so I think it's important to always give both sides of these yeah. stories. The system is far from perfect. It's got some fantastic things going for it, but there are things we know we need to do better. All of us, we, I mean, mm. everyone around this table, mm. as we. There are th other things we can do. And this slight sense of we've got um, extraordinary talent, extraordinary technology, and money coming in to support this – but we need to be able to create more massively impactful outputs. Mm -hmm. So creating a company which grows a little bit, becomes more valuable, is then sold, create, creating a rich student or a rich academic is one outcome, mm -hmm. and it may go on to do something amazing. But we should be thinking about the grand challenges facing the world, this, the um, sustainability development goals. What are we doing to address those? Mm -hmm. And yes, entrepreneurial behaviour and startups is one way bits of that can be addressed, but 
There's some massive system-level challenges that we should be addressing. What are we doing to support those? And I think we could do much more in that area. Mm-hmm. Now, as part of Q Talks, we're also crowdsourcing questions from our listeners. Ah. And some of the questions we got um, centered around your research, others centered around startups, and a few others too. And so maybe Shreya and I will just shoot you some questions and, and you can right. pick up some. Um, so one question we got, Uh, was around additive manufacturing. And we know that you've done some research in this area too. Um, and the question is, will there still be a place for subtractive manufacturing in the future or will additive replace it entirely? Oh, right. Um, well, maybe just a tiny bit of context to make sure everyone's on the same page about yes. subtractive and additive, if that's mm -hmm. okay. Um, Not so that I need that or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, manufacturing 101, there is... You can think about four ways in which you can make stuff. You either take the material and you convert it from solid to liquid, pour it into a cast, uh, let it solidify, make the object. So, you know, well, what's a good example? What's becoming topical? Oh, Easter eggs, Easter bunnies, made out of chocolate. That's how you make them, right? Next one would be forming. Take the object, the material you've got, and a apply massive force to it to squish it into the right shape. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at the crudest level, it's plasticine modeling, exactly the same process is used for car body panels and the like. So that's uh, casting, forming, and then the next two are um, subtractive. So that's what you do with wood. You know, you chop the tree down, chop away the bits you don't want, and you're left with your chair or table or whatever. And then you have additive. A good example of that is bricklaying. Right, you're literally putting the material where you want it. You put the cement, put the brick, and that's, that's additive manufacturing. But additive has become um, super hyped mm -hmm. because of its association, or one type is of additive is 3D printing mm. because it literally puts the material only where it's needed, just like a bricklayer puts a brick where it's needed and nowhere else. So that's quite exciting. And it's got two particular benefits or two effects that we've had from this. So the first is that it allows customization. So you can make a product that is unique to an individual. So it has this ability to do customization. And if you have lots and lots of printers, you can do mass customization. So lots of medical applications for this because every human body is different. So if you need to make a new jawbone for somebody who's had an accident or you're making an in-ear hearing aid or you're adding a implant uh, to support bone structure, you can do that with 3D printing. You can make it in a unit of one that is specific for that person. Mm -hmm. The other issue with 3D printing is rather than needing massive factories where you make, um, you go to a place where the costs are low and the skills are appropriate and produce things in huge volumes to keep the cost of each one down, if you're not doing that anymore, you're producing deliberately units of one, mm -hmm. then probably what you want to do is to make it very close to where it's going to be used. Two quick examples. One, on the International Space Station, there is a 3D printer. Because if one of those astronauts is a bit clumsy and bangs something and snaps a switch off, the cost of sending up a rocket is much cheaper than it used to be, but it's still enormously expensive. Mm. So what do they do? They print the replacement part in the International Space Station. Nifty. Wow. Pretty nifty indeed. So you've compressed <laughs> production and consumption much closer together. We can see now that Adidas, uh, working with a company called Carbon, are producing what should be an impossible um, lower piece of a, of a trainer mm -hmm. because they can make it. And at the moment, they're making it because it has particular functionality. But it can be that you could then make every shoe for each individual. You would have a perfectly customized shoe, which could be 
you could literally, rather than the ridiculous situation at the moment, where you decide you want something, you go into a shop, they haven't got what you want, or you might feedback some other way. Very, very, so a group of designers somewhere are trying to guess what you want. They're designing something, they're getting those designs sent over to somewhere far away. The, the product is made, it's then put into a box, it's then put into a container, it's then transported right the way across the world in massive container ships. Containers are then put onto trucks or trains, transported all the way to the depot, from the depot to the local shopping centre, they unpack the box, put it on the shelf, and you walk up and go, yeah, I don't really like that. <laughs> it's ridiculous, massively unsustainable, but we do it. Now, there's a potential to make the thing you want where you want it. Mm -hmm. So we can just have our own 3D printers at home, is that what you're saying? Ah, I see you overshot there. No, the problem <laughs> is, that's what people thought. And yeah. you're absolutely right that that was a, a trajectory of what we thought, that it logically will go from factory far away to you will have the Star Trek replicator in your house yeah. and you'll just tell it and it'll make whatever you want. The truth is, I very strongly suspect it's not going to be like that. Mm. 3D printing is a tool. One of multiple tools engineers have in their toolbox or medics have in their toolbox, it's, it's hugely uh, applicable in a range of areas, but it does certain things very well and other things not very well. Mm. So what we see is it's got three broad purposes. Number one, it's fantastic for prototyping. Mm -hmm. If you want to make something and give it to your customer and say, is that what you meant? They're brilliant for that. Secondly, tooling. Um, thinking of medical uh, applications here, neurosurgery. When you're drilling through someone's skull, you want to make sure that the, whatever you're sticking through there goes to exactly the right place. You print a surgical guide, literally something that is just used for that patient, for that operation, and it's a perfect fit. Yeah. That's really good. So prototyping, tooling, and then final product, like the Adidas carbon trainers. Mm -hmm. You're actually making the thing the customer will get. And those three application areas are all very specific. But all the other processes of forming and of casting and of subtractive manufacture will still continue. Mm. And what we see is that they blend together. Mm. So if you're making something out of plastic, you need a mould. So what you can do is you can say, well, we can make part of the mould with additive. Then we have a traditional subtractive machine coming in to polish and grind away, and a bit more additive and a bit more subtractive. So you combine these technologies. Mm -hmm. So I can talk for hours about this. Oh, I'll shut up now. Super, super so you could say it's additive technology. Oh, dear. <laughs> we'll let that one pass. We're, 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 we're here at the Institute for Manufacturing. Yet, do you see a general trend among the students and maybe also the postdocs that they focus now only on software and kind of completely avoid kind of product manufacturing, which might add additional costs and is very difficult or risky to do? And do you think this is a sustainable approach that kind of people may or may not focus increasingly right. on software only? Uh, software is hugely important and, you know, it it, uh, it it is staggering how prevalent it is in every aspect of our lives. And actually, I think we probably need more people doing mm -hmm. innovation around software to make sure that all these AI, ML, data science, all of that stuff is done to the highest level and fully incorporated with all the underlying business, mm -hmm. social and ethical considerations that go with it. I think mm -hmm. that's hugely important. But to your point about it, so therefore, do we not need to worry about manufacturing? Are we missing an opportunity there? I think it's a really interesting area. So there's a, a concept uh, encapsulated in a book called The Lean Startup, mm -hmm. which, uh, Thomas, I know you know very Eric well. Reese. That's the one. Really good book. Thoroughly recommend everybody reads it. 
But it was about how do you deal with the fact you don't really know what your customers want, so why would you invest loads of money producing a product that they may not actually want? So you do the minimal viable product. You mm -hmm. get to the, you kind of have a hypothesis, I think it's this, you produce that, you give it to some customers, and then based on their usage, you feed that back and you iterate and improve. Mm -hmm. But people said, yeah, but you can't produce a minimal viable jet engine. Mm -hmm. You can't produce a minimal viable container ship, it just doesn't work like that, which was kind of a flippant, almost lazy argument, you know, reducing to the absurd. No, you can't. But what you can do is for a lot of products, you can produce some products to get them in the hands of customers so they can use them. And this is where it links, loops back rather nicely to additive manufacturing 3D printing, mm -hmm. because that technology is brilliant for producing the minimal viable product for a physical artifact mm -hmm. and getting it in the hands of customers and saying, well, this clearly isn't going to be how the, the, the final high volume product will look, but it's something to get some feedback from you. Mm -hmm. And we saw, in fact, looking at Thomas here, uh, visits to Aachen, mm -hmm. RWTH there, where they have their wonderful, uh, in Germany, their uh, demo factory, where they actually got students involved in, and do correct me if I get this wrong, the building of a car, not just as a fun student project, but as a commercial thing and the uh, and to make sure they got the car right many of the components in the first of these were 3d printed because the cost of tooling and getting normal parts made was staggeringly high mm -hmm. if you're only making 10 cars yeah. 3d printing is brilliant but once you've produced that first 10 or 20 or whatever it was what you can then do is to say right the customers actually want the door a bit lower or the, the seat a bit different we now know that we can now go to invest in the, quote, real technology and produce this in volume slightly cheaper. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I've thinking about my research project this year, I've used 3D printers for prototyping and then right. figuring out the final design I want and then getting that made by moulding plastic. Right. And yeah. that's, that's a really good way of doing it, isn't yeah. it? And did you find the process of using a 3D printer uh, intuitive? Was it difficult? It was great. I mean, it, all, it uses all the same CAD software. And then, but it's highly transferable and super quick. So that's what's really interesting about yeah. it. Once you know how to kind of you're comfortable operating in in a virtual environment, the 3D printer is just like pressing print for a, a 2D printer, getting some paper printed. It just print the object. Yeah, exactly. It's really intuitive, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's been great. Um, taking it on a slightly different note. So, bit of a cheesy question, but if if a student has has an idea that they want to. Uh, look at sort of commercialising, what is your advice to them? I So this is probably the most important question uh, is to answer your question. Uh, and that is, I remember, cause I remember I had exactly the same question back in 1998 or something when I thought, I, someone comes to me with an idea, what am I supposed to say to them? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, what do I do? You know. And so a really helpful lady from MIT gave me some advice. She said, just five questions. Just make them, don't have to directly ask these five questions, but you should in your head be able to answer them from what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Number one, is there actually an opportunity there? Because very often, and I think some of us engineers are a little prone to this, you're kind of driven by, here's an amazingly clever, cool thing I've done. I think it could be used there, as opposed to saying, there is an opportunity there. Right? And really, does somebody, is there an itch that needs scratching? Is there something that needs doing? Really? Are you sure about that? Or is it just a cool thing? Second question is, have you actually got a solution to that problem? Mm -hmm. Have you got a technology that can address that opportunity? Because often people will spot problems, but they don't actually have a solution to it. So that's very important, obviously. 
Third one is, is there a... Um, it's about competition, but of course you ask a clever person with their wonderful idea, is there any competition? I go, no, my product is absolutely brilliant, nobody is as clever as me. And that's really not good enough. What it should be saying is, at the moment, this problem is solved this way or that way. And this is fine, very cheap, very reliable, but doesn't is not connected. This solution is very expensive and really good, but no one's going to buy it. My solution is between those two. There is always, there is always an alternative approach. It may not be as good as yours, but you must always acknowledge that there is, there are alternative approaches. Fourth question is, you might be able to do all these things. You've spotted an opportunity. You've seen that there is a solution to this and you have a sense of where it fits into what else is there. Mm -hmm. Can you actually make this into a sustainable business? You could go through all of those three points and work out that to solve that problem with that technology that fits in with the competition, each thing is going to cost a million pounds mm -hmm. and there's only going to be a market for three of them and you don't know who those people are. So you just go, well, that's not going to work. So it's all about the business model. Mm -hmm. It's about saying, can you balance the, the, the cost of doing the thing with serving the customer need such that there is a margin between the two that is your profit. And I mean this for everything, from addressing a social challenge as well as, well as an economic opportunity. Right. It's just the same. Mm -hmm. Just because you're, you might be focusing on a, on a social venture or doing something mm -hmm. that is not driven by commercial imperatives, you've still got to make sure it makes sense financially. Otherwise, it'll just hemorrhage money. Mm -hmm. And then there's the fifth question, the most important one, which is what do you want to do about it? Mm -hmm. Because again, going back to the 90s when I was trying to help people at St. John's Innovation Centre, people would sometimes come along and go, well, and they'd answer the first four questions absolutely fine and then go, well, I, we should find some somebody who's going to do this. We should find a, a chief executive for this company to do this thing. And you go, oh, if you haven't got the passion to do this, if you don't really believe in it, it's going to go nowhere fast. It's not to say that you might not recruit a good chief executive at some point, mm. but if you, the person sitting or talking to me about this, has no passion for this thing and doesn't want to really, really want to get involved in solving it, almost guarantee it's going to go nowhere. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I hope everyone's been listening carefully to this <laughs> words of wisdom from Tim. Words of wisdom. That's, I've never been accused of that before. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that might be all we've got time for, but just to wrap up on a completely random question that I'm putting you on the spot with. Oh, no. Um, what is your favourite place in the world and why? Uh, Japan. Okay. And why is because it is extraordinary to see how an entire society has evolved over many epochs in response to all sorts of external and internal stimuli. It's been an incredibly innovative place and continues to be a very innovative place. Mm. And it's in perhaps stark contrast, as it often is, to places like Silicon Valley, where extraordinary things happen. So my second favourite place, I know you didn't ask that, but I'll say it anyway, <laughs> is Silicon Valley, because there's a sort of absolute sense of anything is possible. There are no barriers. There are only opportunities. I think there's love, something lovely about contrasting that with a society that is focused on how do we develop social solutions to complex problems, which the, has happened in Japan many times over. Amazing. Thanks very much. That was a Thanks, very well-prepared answer to, to that question. Well, <laughs> thank you very much for your questions. I really appreciate that. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Um, we've really enjoyed the conversation um, and I hope you've enjoyed being on the show with us. Definitely. Thank you both very much. Thank you. <laughs> 
So thanks again to Tim for coming on the show. It was great to, to have a chat with him. And if you, as our listeners, want to learn more about Tim, then go ahead and check out his LinkedIn profile. So Thomas, what did you find interesting about uh, our chat with Tim? Well, Tim is such an interesting guy and he has done so many different things and he has so many different interesting insights. One of the things I found really interesting was that he emphasized how the Cambridge system has evolved over, over many decades and that kind of he was a student and there wasn't much to do in the entrepreneurship innovation space and just kind of a couple of decades later we are in this hustling and bustling place and everyone's talking about it and it's interesting to see how even a place as innovative as Cambridge has evolved. Yeah definitely and as a student here it can sometimes feel you can you can sort of take it for granted almost mm. that there's so much going on and that we're, we have so many opportunities so it's it's amazing to see to hear about how Cambridge has has come on as you right. said. Um, definitely for me as well, it was great to hear his advice to aspiring innovators about how they can actually get involved and what they should be looking out for when they're looking to sort of head into the entrepreneurship space. Yes. So for our next episode, we are really excited to welcome Tom Simmons. Tom is the CEO and founder of a startup called STEM. And we're really excited to hear about his story and how he has evolved from an academic to an entrepreneur. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we'd also like to say a really big thank you to the team at QTech who have been working hard behind the scenes to make this happen. And we're recording today at the Institute for Manufacturing. Thank you very much for listening. Please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme or tell us your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks. <laughs>